scripture passage which we have read together is our text then this afternoon. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Abram already at this point was living in the land of Canaan, having been called by God's grace to leave the land of Ur of the Chaldees and go to what we know as the promised land. So Abram was living in the promised land, but we also know that the promised land is not heaven. Though the land of Canaan served as a type of heaven, it foreshadowed that eternal rest which God has prepared for his people. Nevertheless, living in the land of Canaan did not mean trouble-free sailing, if you will. In fact, Abram, as with his son Isaac and Jacob, wandering in the land of Canaan, as sojourners, as strangers, they serve as types of our earthly pilgrimage. They serve as types of our brief time in this world, a world in which we live as sojourners, as pilgrims, who, as in the case of Abram and Isaac, uh, seek a homeland, as Hebrews 11 teaches us. We seek a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We're traveling towards a heavenly home. And in the meantime, there are trials and there are tests in this life. There are hardships. There are afflictions. Abram faced a famine in the land of Canaan, a severe famine. And that became a trial for him became a trial of his faith, and it became a trial of his faith in which he didn't do so well. Abram faltered, as we will see, but we will also see that that failure on his part didn't keep the Lord from preserving him, and it didn't keep the Lord from maintaining his purpose to him and his purpose through him. The call of Abram from a land of idolatry, reveals God's amazing grace. But God's amazing grace continues to be revealed to Abram and through Abram in the way he preserved him, in the way the Lord maintained his purpose and the way he kept his plan. So that as with every uh, child of that covenant of grace, the Lord's faithfulness shines in the way he keeps his purpose from being frustrated by human weakness and doubt and sin and by worldly powers that would threaten, humanly speaking, the fulfillment of God's plan. God preserves his purpose in spite of the failings that mar the most faithful lives of God's children. And that's what we see in this passage before us. When Abram falters, the Lord shows his faithfulness and grace. Now, this revelation of the Lord's faithfulness begins with an account of Abram's failure. I've described a fear-driven plan to capture Abram's actions here as he 
went into the land of Egypt. In the face of this famine, he sought refuge, he sought food for his household in the land of Egypt. He went down to Egypt. And at this point already, we might ask the question, uh, was Abram justified in doing this? Was leaving the promised land at this point uh, an example of little faith? Did he falter in his faith already here? You know that this instance of Abram going down to Egypt is the first of at least four examples in the Bible of going down to Egypt. It won't be long when Abram's grandson, Jacob, also known as Israel, will go down to Egypt with his extended family in order to escape a famine in order to provide food for his family and his household. That's one example. Many, many years later, in the time of Jeremiah, the people of Jerusalem, they go down to Egypt. And in their case, it's to escape uh, the threat of the Chaldeans. They seek refuge and safety in the land of Egypt. And then, of course, there is perhaps the most uh, familiar example And that is of Joseph, the adoptive father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who took Jesus and his mother Mary and went down to Egypt. And there it was, you know, to escape the threat of of Herod's malicious enmity against uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in uh, the, the case of Jacob and certainly in the case of Joseph, Their going down to Egypt was not a lack of faith. In fact, in both of these instances, the Lord gave them direct uh, reassurance. In fact, in both of these instances, by way of a dream, the Lord assured them that going to Egypt was the right thing to do. The Lord appeared to Jacob in a dream and said, Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will be with you. I will go with you. The Lord appeared to Joseph and uh, told him to take the young child and his mother and to go to Egypt. Now, the other example is a different story. In the case of the people of Jerusalem going to Egypt in order to escape the threat of the Chaldeans, that was in direct conflict with the clearly revealed word of the Lord to them through Jeremiah. In their case, it was a lack of faith. Well, what about Abram? It might not be easy for us to be real clear as to whether it was wrong for him to go down to Egypt at all in the first place. I believe it's significant that there's no indication in our text that he sought the Lord's will in this matter. There is no indication that the Lord gave him direction to go down to Egypt. And one thing is clear, and that is that the attitude with which Abram went down to Egypt was wrong, and it showed a lack of fully trusting in the Lord. And that becomes evident in this plan that he devised in order to look out for himself and his safety by having Sarai say that she is his sister rather than his wife. For fear of his life, for fear that the Egyptians seeing Sarai's beauty would want to take her for themselves and kill Abram, Abram came up with this plan that Sarah would be identified as his sister rather than his wife. We read of that in verses 11 through 13. 
And it all hinges on the fact that Sarai was a very beautiful woman, strikingly beautiful. And we might say, well, well how could that be, given the fact that uh, by this time Sarai was, was uh, 65 years old, and she may have been attractive, but to be so strikingly beautiful as to uh, pose a threat to Abram's well-being, she must have been quite something. And in this connection, we also have to remember that given the longevity of people of those days, a woman of 65 years old would probably be comparable to a woman in her 30s and 40s of today. Sarah, I lived to be 127 years old, and so she was at the halfway mark to that. That might help to explain somewhat the the fact of her striking beauty at at this age. And it was genuine beauty. It wasn't simply... uh, Abram's love-blinded perception of his wife, the Egyptians themselves recognized her beauty. The princes of Pharaoh uh, reported her beauty and praised her beauty to the king. She was a very beautiful woman, and that became the occasion for this, this scheme of Abram to say that she was his sister. Now, when we evaluate that Plan. We have to also appreciate the fact that uh, it wasn't patently false. It was rather half true. We know from Genesis 20 that Sarai was, in fact, Abram's half-sister. She was the daughter of Abram's father, although they had different mothers. And though that might shock us, and we might think that that is somehow wrong... We have to remember the time in which these things were revealed to us, before the giving of the law, before the, the prohibition of such unions. So just as, as, the, as Cain uh, took a wife from among his sisters, and perhaps this took place uh, for many, many years, so it was not wrong for Abram to marry his half-sister. And it was true then that she was his sister, And yet, we know that it was misleading. And Abram's intent was to suggest that that she was eligible. And that was clearly wrong. And at this point, we might indeed ask, what was he thinking? What did he really expect might happen if somebody set his heart on Sarai? Was he actually willing to, to see her snatched up? and married by some Egyptian while he stood helplessly by, or while he uh, made a cowardly escape all by himself? Well, at this point, we have to appreciate that this is not likely what Abram had in mind at all. Abram knew that if some influential Egyptian set his heart on Sarai and thought he was her husband, well, he might have Abram killed so that she is then available. But Abram likewise knew that if Sarai was uh, reported to be his sister, well, that would change things. It would place Abram in the position of a father. An elder brother would, would hold that place then in that culture. And anyone who wanted to become involved with Sarai would then approach Abram and perhaps seek uh, consent from him or perhaps negotiate with him for a dowry. And that would make things different, wouldn't it? And that would perhaps allow some time 
And that would allow Abram and Sarai to make their getaway. So at this point, we might say, well, yeah, there, there is certain plausibility to this plan. In fact, we might even say it's a rather clever plan. But here at Congregation, we also have to realize that, that clever is sometimes nothing but, but worldly wise. And to be worldly wise is something different than to show faith. There are three things that are clearly wrong with this plan. And by identifying these three things, it may be helpful for you and I also to evaluate plans that we make. It might help us to evaluate our own attitudes and our own actions. First of all, Abram trusted in his own clever scheme rather than the Lord. There's no indication that Abram uh, sought direction from the Lord in this matter. There's no indication that Abram prayed for the Lord's blessing on his plan. He trusted in himself, and he failed to do what, what Proverbs commands us to do when it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And then the next verse says, do not be wise in your own eyes. You see, those are the very things that Abram failed to do. He failed to trust in the Lord. He leaned on his own understanding. He didn't acknowledge the Lord. He was wise in his own eyes. And we'll see what kind of trouble it brought upon him. So Abram failed to trust in the Lord fully in this case. And secondly, Abram feared man more than the Lord. And when you fear man more than the Lord, it's as if you fear man rather than the Lord. You see, Abram thought more of the dangers and the threats that man posed in this situation than he thought of the will of God and the protection of God. That's, in a way, it's another way of, of uh, fleshing out the fact that he didn't trust in the Lord. Remember how the Heidelberg Catechism explains the, the first commandment. That we're to have nothing else other than the Lord upon whom we place our trust. Him alone we are to fear. Abram feared man here more than the Lord. And you know what the Bible says about that. It says the fear of man brings a snare. When people are ruled by the fear of what other people think, when they're controlled by uh, their, their approval, or their disapproval, well, they end up being entrapped because of that attitude. The fear of man brings a snare. Abram, on this instance, feared man more than the Lord. And thirdly, the plan that he relied on was itself a deceptive plan. It was both wrong and it was foolish. And indeed, in in his own cleverness... Abram did set a trap for himself and for Sarai. And isn't that the real pitfall? The real danger of of falsehood. The real problem with deceitfulness. Rather than solve problems, telling lies usually makes them bigger. It usually makes them worse. It tends to complicate things. Children, you need to remember that. When you're tempted to tell a lie... 
because you want to get out of some kind of trouble or you want to protect yourself, the next thing you know, you're going to have to tell another lie in order to cover up that lie. And pretty soon things are going to get pretty complicated. And you're going to find yourself in all kinds of trouble because you started with a lie. Oh, what tangled webs we weave when once we practice to deceive. And that's what Abram discovered. Abram didn't reckon with Pharaoh, did he? In verse 15, we read, When Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his place, palace. It's that simple. Pharaoh saw, he wanted, he took. No negotiation here. Suddenly, Sarai's a member of Pharaoh's harem. And you see what kind of trouble then Abram finds himself in. And that leads us to consider, secondly, the Lord's care for his servant in this terrible situation that he'd gotten himself into. Sovereign protection. There's a bit of irony in the the very language of verse 16 where it says of Pharaoh that he treated Abram well for her sake. If you paid attention to this passage, you'll notice the very same language in verse 13 where Abram says to his wife, Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake. Well, it seems as if his plan worked. It seems as if Abram is being treated well for the sake of Sarai. Namely, Abram's receiving gifts. No dowry, no negotiation. But Pharaoh's sending flocks and servants his way. Sheep, they're enumerated there. Cattle, sheep, male and female donkeys, men servants and and, and maidservants, perhaps this is the, the time when, when Abram acquired Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant, a gift from Pharaoh along with others. Female donkeys, camels, valuable means of transportation. Abram's being enriched further by these generous gifts from Pharaoh. You know that worldly schemes... They sometimes seem to work in a way, uh, for a while. The deception sometimes appears to pay off, or so it seems. And if you have experienced that, or if you are experiencing that, you need to also remember what the Bible says when it says, be sure that your sin will find you out. That doesn't mean that everything is dealt with in this life. Paul, in his instruction to Timothy, says that that some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. And those of some people follow afterward. But it's certainly true in the case of God's children that when they go down a pathway of deception and they live contrary to the will of the Lord, eventually they're going to face it. The Lord is going to correct them. And isn't it too, brothers and sisters, that even while things may seem to work for a while, in a path of disobedience, even though deceptive plots may seem to be successful. Isn't it true that a believer feels little enjoyment over gains or successes that are obtained with a bad conscience? 
A dark cloud hangs over such gains. How do you suppose Abram enjoyed these gifts? How do you suppose Abram enjoyed enjoyed the new sheep and oxen and female and male servants that he was receiving from Pharaoh's hand, all while his wife was in Pharaoh's harem? And Abram probably well wondered whether or not she was in his bed. Well, it appears that it never came to that. But that's where things were heading. That's where things were leading. That's where things would have gone if it weren't for the Lord's intervention. The Lord did intervene. Verse 17 tells us that the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and all his household. He plagued Egypt because of Sarai. And we're not told how Pharaoh knew that it was because he took Sarai, the wife of Abram. It may be that uh, when Sarai was the only one in the household that wasn't suffering from boils or whatever other form uh, this plague of the Lord took, that questions began to be asked, or perhaps Sarai told Pharaoh herself, or perhaps the Lord simply made it clear somehow to Pharaoh. But he found out. And then Pharaoh called Abram, and he rebuked him. And we hear that in verse 18 and 19. He summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. It's a pretty shameful thing, isn't it, when sinners of this world rebuke the saints. Has that ever happened to you? Has it ever happened to you that an unbeliever exposes your own sins and tells you about it? Well, that's embarrassing. It ought to be very humbling. It's far worse, isn't it? And it ought to be far more painful to face that than to face the world's opposition for the sake of your Christian confession. It's far worse than to have the world point out your sins than have the world falsely accuse you for the sake of Christ. You see, unbelievers, they're able to, they're able to uh, identify dishonesty, aren't they? They might excuse it in their own practice, but they recognize it when you do it. An unbelieving boss can identify laziness. Unchristian acquaintances can uh, identify downright meanness. What a shameful thing if they point those things out in us. And it ought to humble us. And when they rebuke us, we ought to hear the Lord's rebuke. And we ought to be humbled at the thought that we bring dishonor to the name of the Lord. When those who don't even know him as we do are used to expose our own sins. Let none of you suffer as an evildoer, is what Peter says to the church. If you suffer for the sake of Christ, well, you're blessed. But if you suffer as an evildoer, you not only deserve it, but brings dishonor to the name of the Lord. And isn't that, in fact, what, what Abram was experiencing here by this rebuke from Pharaoh? 
Abram's silent before Pharaoh. He has no excuse. Abram was chastised by him, and he must have felt it. He must have felt it painfully when he was escorted out of Egypt by Pharaoh's servants. That's what he did. He commanded his servants, send this man out of here. Probably with an armed guard to the border. He was exposed. Abram was humiliated. Abram was expelled. But we see the Lord's work in this, don't we? We see the Lord's sovereign hand, the Lord's holy hand on him. Pharaoh rebuked Abram, but that's as far as it went. Pharaoh may well have wanted to kill him at this point and still take Sarai. But Pharaoh had felt the heavy hand of the Lord upon him, and he wasn't about to risk any more of that. So he let him go. Abram is sent out. And he's sent out not only with his own life, but he's sent out with his wife. He's sent out with his wealth. Not only the wealth that he had when he entered Egypt, but the, the wealth that he received from Pharaoh. And doesn't that show us the amazing grace of God to Abram and his house? Undeserved favor. That's what grace is. The first verse of chapter 13 says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had. And everything he had. See, it it repeats what it had just said in, in verse 20, where it says, Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. All those things that he had before, all those things that he had accumulated in Egypt. And then the next verse goes on to say that Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. And at this point, we might say to ourselves, you know, wouldn't it have been better for Abram to have really been taught a lesson? Wouldn't it have been better if if Abram was was sent out with, with just the shirt on his back? And perhaps just enough provisions for himself and his household so they can uh, survive in, in the wilderness uh, long enough to accumulate some, some possessions again? Wouldn't that really have taught him? Didn't he deserve that kind of treatment? Well, yes, and, and much worse. And sometimes the Lord disciplines his people in severe ways. Sometimes he takes away their possessions or their health. For spiritual purposes. And that's grace as well, isn't it? When the Lord afflicts his people in that way. But the Lord wanted to magnify his grace in Abram in a different way. He didn't strip him of his wealth. He sent him on his way. And we can be sure that Abram was humbled. Even by the Lord's gracious dealings with him in this way. Those flocks and those servants that he got from Pharaoh, they must have served as humbling reminders of that grace of the Lord. And they may well even have served for a lesson that he never forgot. You recall a later episode when Abram and his his 300 servants delivered the, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
and Lot and his household from those neighboring kings who had carried them off captive. And Abram rescued them and restored all their possessions. And the king of Sodom says, here, we'll take the people. You keep all the stuff. You've saved us. And remember Abram's response? No. He says, I've lifted up my hand to heaven. I've sworn to the Lord. I'm not even going to take a shoestring of what doesn't belong to me. Lest anyone say, I have made Abram rich. And perhaps that's a reflection of of his own reflection upon what happened in Egypt. His care not to dishonor the Lord in the way he accumulates his possessions ever again. Certainly the sequel leads us to see that Abram was not unmindful and unmoved by this grace that the Lord showed to him. When he traveled to the Negev, that is, to the southern part of the land of Canaan, he moved continually from the south to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. 